All right, I need my uh, Greek-speaking helper, Caleb Sean. Come on down to the front. You're going to help me this morning. All right, dude, I know you're excited to speak into the mic. Let's go over here. Come on over here. You think you're loud without a mic. Wait till you speak into this thing. All right. So, Caleb, you're just going to repeat after me, okay? Mm-hmm. Say, Thelo na. Thelo na. Noriso. Noriso. Tan Cristo. Tan Cristo. All right, let's have a seat and see what happens. Good job. Hello, Maranatha. My name is Paul. I'm the least of the apostles of Jesus Christ and probably the one closest to death. I say that often, but it's likely truer than ever. Things are very unstable in Rome right now. And here in my house of imprisonment, I get news of the area and there's been atrocities everywhere. It's a frightening time to be out of favor with the emperor. But I know that if the tent of my body is destroyed, I have a dwelling place with the king of the universe prepared for me. And he is my hope and he is my stability, my rock and my fortress. I've been I've been telling you the story of how I got here, how I got to this courtyard in the middle of the city. You remember that Agabus prophesied that I would be bound if I went to Jerusalem, and and that's exactly what happened. As you remember, uh, I went to Jerusalem from Caesarea. I met there with James, the elder, the brother of Jesus, and when I talked to him, he said to me, Paul, Thousands of Jews all over the world believe that you are teaching everyone to just ignore and to break the law of Moses. What are we going to do about this situation? And and I understood his predicament. I was the missionary to the Gentiles, not really to the Jews. And by telling the Gentiles they no longer needed to follow the law, it seemed that I was saying that the Jews should just abandon their heritage. And that's not what I was saying, but... I can see how people understood that from my message. And so in working with James, we came to a a compromise, a solution, if you would. I was already in Jerusalem to make my purification vows. And purification vows were, were standard for anyone who left the area of Israel and traveled to other lands. It was assumed that you had had contact with Gentiles or unclean things, and when you came back to Jerusalem, you would... Uh, followed the rituals of purification. So that was expected and standard. And they, well, it seemed to the elders anyways that it would be wise for me to pay for the completion of the Nazarite vows for four other men who were coming into the temple in a little bit. And the completion of this rather all-consuming ritual was the shaving of their heads, and, and there was a cost associated with that. So I was, uh, my plan was to demonstrate solidarity with the Jewish people by being publicly involved in these rituals. My goal was, you know, by being a Jew to Jews and a Gentile to Gentiles, somehow we could proclaim the gospel to all of them. And so um, I agreed to that plan. The problem was, however, that 
in any type of public fulfilling of vows like the Nazarites' vows, those things are published a week in advance so that family and friends can gather for the ceremony. And so everybody knew one week in advance exactly what time and on which day I would be in the temple, which meant all of my Jewish opponents arrived there ahead of me. So when I came for this peaceful consummation of vows, my adversaries were all in the temple. And as soon as I arrived, they started to complain and agitate and, and cause trouble. They argued that I taught against the Jews. They, they said that I spoke against the Hebrew people as a nation. They said that I had defiled the temple. I hadn't defiled the temple. But I, I suspect, looking back, that they had seen me walking through the streets of Jerusalem with a friend of mine, Trophimus, who was not a Jew, and they probably just assumed I took him into the temple with me, but, but I didn't. I mean, as you all know, if you go into the temple, after you pass through the court of the Gentiles and through the court of the women, there are stones there. And the stones say, I mean, it's right there. Don't pass this point if you're not a Jew under penalty of death. And so I wasn't going to violate the law of the temple, but they just assumed that I had. And so they just, they just dragged me out. They dragged me out of the inner courtyard. They slammed the bronze doors behind me. It was a riot. It was, it was out of control. The garrison commander, whose name was Claudius Lysias, heard of the developing riot. I don't know if someone ran and told him about it or if he could just hear by the sheer volume of the noise that was coming from the temple, but he came with soldiers and dispersed most of the crowd and I was arrested. As they're arresting me, the crowd's yelling, away with him, away with him, and all kinds of things I can't repeat. But the, many of the crowd followed. They followed all the way back to the Roman barracks where he and the soldiers were returning with me in custody. When I got to the top step of the barracks, I realized that a, a pretty sizable crowd had gathered. And so I said to Lysias, I said, would you mind if I attempted to address this crowd? And he was surprised. Well, I guess because I had addressed the commander in Greek. And, and he was just expecting that I was one of those brutish rabble-risers that always come out of the Jewish ranks. He had no idea that I had any education or training or I was anything other than an agitator. And so when he heard me speaking in Greek, and then also in Aramaic, he realized, oh, this isn't like your run-of-the-mill agitator. And so he, he permitted me to address the crowd that was assembled there. And because Aramaic, Aramaic was the uh, prominent language in Jerusalem, I spoke to the crowd in the language they were most likely to understand. I told the crowd about my heritage in Israel. I told them about my upbringing in Tarsus, about my Pharisaic background. I told them about my zeal for the, law, for the law and how I had always done everything I could to obey the law, and I had always taught the law and pursued the law. And then I told them about, about my experience on the road to Damascus, how Jesus cut through everything else. I thought I could see, but he blinded me just to let me know how little I saw. But then a loyal Jew, one of their own, Ananias had come 
And he had placed his hands on me and prayed for me, and the, and the scales fell off my eyes, and finally I really could see that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that had been written. I told them about the vision I had had a year previously in the temple and how I felt that God had sent me to speak to the Gentiles. And then I talked, well, as soon as I tried to say anything about going to the Gentiles, the crowd just erupted again in anger. And Lysias dragged me back into the barracks. I, I don't know if he was hoping for a peaceful speech or thought it would be received peacefully, but he just assumed I really was the agitator that he thought I was, and he ordered me to be examined by flogging. I don't know exactly how that amounts to examining. But I was tied to the posts, and as the centurion prepared to open my back with rods, I looked over at him and said, are you sure that it's lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen who has not yet been tried or found guilty? That caught his attention. He quickly went to the commander and said, hey, did you know this guy was a Roman citizen? The commander came running, sent for the tribune, and the tribune came and said, uh, are you a Roman citizen? I said, yes. Well, immediately I was untied and brought back into the barracks, and a, I guess you could call it a trial, a hearing was organized for the next day. And they called the Jewish leaders in to present their case against me so they could discern whether I was really deserving of the beating or perhaps worse that they were intending to give to me. So the next day, the Jews came. And really the arguments were the same as they'd always been. I was speaking against the Jewish nation. I was agitating. I was stirring everyone up. And as soon as I mentioned the fact that I was on trial for believing in the resurrection of the dead... Well, the Jews started infighting against themselves because you remember the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection and, and they went at it again and again. And, and after a while, um, obviously nothing was going to get done there. I, I was taken back to prison. And while I was in the prison in the barracks, the Lord spoke to me again. And the Lord said to me, in just the same way that you have witnessed here in Jerusalem, you must also witness in Rome. And so I knew in that moment where I was headed. I knew the direction I would be going from here. The Lord had made it clear, clear that I need to give my witness before the emperor, before the entire empire. Well, the Jews had asked for me to be released into their custody for a trial there, and I knew how that would end. I would, if they released me into their custody, I would never make it to the trial hall. Someone would, bandits would miraculously arrive or something would happen to keep me from getting there and I would be dead on arrival. And so I asked not to be released uh, to the Jews for that trial. And while the commander kept me in the barracks, my sister discovered something even more disturbing. My sister, who's in Jerusalem, learned of a plot of 40 Jewish men who had taken an oath to eat nothing until I was dead. And so she sent my nephew over to the commander to tell him about the plot and to explain it's imperative that he not be released to the Jews because they're going to kill him before he ever gets to the Jews. Well, thank God for the commander's nerve 
because he did something I didn't think I would ever see happen in my life. He ordered 200 Roman footmen, 200 spear-carrying soldiers, and 70 cavalry, cavalry mounts to protect me and take me that very night from Jerusalem and start on the 70-mile journey to Caesarea where I would be protected from these Jews. Imagine Paul with a military escort provided and paid for by Rome. It was a delight to me. And off we went that night secretly so I could avoid the bandits that waited for me in the bushes. Well, I got to Caesarea, and when I got there, I discovered that Felix was the governor of the province at the time. And Felix, he was a very interesting character. He was appointed by Rome, so he was a Roman official. How he got his appointment, I don't have any idea, but it is clear it was not because of his abilities in governing. The province was mismanaged, but when he did understand that I was from Tarsus, which is in the province of Cilicia, that meant I was under his jurisdiction, and so it was appropriate for him to hear my case. He issued an order, and in five days, the Jews from Jerusalem made the journey with their lawyers to try me in the court of Felix. Seventy miles from Jerusalem, it would take them the better part of four and a half days just to get up there. And so when we gathered in the courtroom of Felix, the Jews made their standard arguments. This man is an agitator throughout the entire world. He's the ringleader of that sect of followers of Jesus called the Nazarenes. He's profaned the temple. The standard arguments. I spoke, as I always do. I affirmed my heritage as a Jew. I affirmed the fact that I was a leader in the sect called Nazarenes by some. But I told him the rest of the story about me causing the riot in the temple, that was not my doing. I was simply there to fulfill my vows. I was coming as a private individual, a member of the nation of Israel. I was stirring up no commotion. I wasn't speaking in the temple, that they were there. They had planned the riot. It was the Jews doing this riot in the temple and had nothing to do with me. And I said, again, basically our disagreement is over the fact of the resurrection of the dead. Well, Felix saw very quickly that this was a religious matter it certainly had nothing to do with civil law. And there wasn't any evidence that I had done anything wrong at all. So the Jews were dismissed, but I was kept in prison. And he decided, well, that maybe he'd wait for the tribune to come in, the Roman military authority, to see what his view was on the matter. But in the time it took for him to come, I had several conversations uh, with Felix, I think part of it, he kept calling me back in, hoping I'd issue him a bribe and that he might profit from, my, uh, from, from, from a favorable judgment in my behalf, since there was no reason to keep me anyway. You know, looking back, you know, in about two years, he was going to be fired by Rome anyway for mismanagement of the province. So it's no surprise that he acted that way. But he kept me in jail in Caesarea for the next full two years. I, I couldn't go anywhere. Couldn't travel out of 
the area where I was confined for two years. And there were no real active charges against me other than what the Jews said. And he knew there was no breaking of Roman law, but there's nothing I could do or anyone could do at that time. He was the law, so I was stuck there. It's exceedingly difficult to figure out what you can do when you're in jail. I mean, in my heart was burning this passion to share the gospel, to visit the churches I had started, to travel to Spain. There were all kinds of dreams that I had for things I could do, but I was confined. I was chained. I felt useless at some level. And I wondered, what, what can I do? I learned during that time that if you seize whatever opportunities for service present themselves, you can always be of service. And so I made it a daily habit to, to look for ways that I could serve. I spoke of the gospel to all of my guards. To every person I encountered, I spoke of the gospel. I was allowed to receive visitors, and so when news from the churches that I had begun came to me, I responded and I tried to give advice. I prayed all the time for the believers in all of the churches across the areas that I traveled. When I received word from a new church in Colossae, one that was uh, founded by a believer named Epaphras, I responded to what I heard and I gave them, I gave them a variety of advice to encourage them. I told them, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Strip off the old self, but clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Remember that you're gathered together in a fellowship which is the body of Christ. And when you're gathered together, you have responsibilities for one another. And it's easy when you, when you live this closely with fellow brothers and sisters of Christ for, for disagreements to bubble up, but, but you have to bear with one another. We have different personalities. We're not all going to get along. But in the body of Christ, we're one. And so we not only bear with one another, when things don't go the way we want, we forgive one another. When others aren't at their best, we forgive one another because that's who we are by definition. We clothe ourselves in love. We pursue harmony and unity. I encourage them to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts by faith. And regardless of what happened, to always be thankful. Thankful if the only thing we're given is the air to breathe in this new day. Always be thankful. And let, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly because the word of Christ is that which shapes us and encourages us and helps us to move forward and discern what the Spirit is doing. During the time that was there, I also got news of the church of Ephesus. You remember all the trauma I had in that year and a half I was in Ephesus. Remember them carrying me off 
inner rest again. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And, and you remember the interaction with Demetrius, the silversmith, and getting hauled in the court again for that. Ephesus, oh my gracious. I had so much in my heart for them. I knew they had difficult times, but they, they needed to be encouraged. And when I heard what was happening in the church, I, I wrote to them as well, and I said, remember, it is God's plan for you and for every believer to be conformed to the image of Christ. That the grace of the Holy Spirit is for your transformation, for your growth, so that you can become stronger and stronger in Christ. Remember that you weren't born into the kingdom when you were born as a child, but you were an alien far from God. And by the grace of God, you were brought close. You were brought into this kingdom. The very fact that you can be a part of the body of Christ in Ephesus is the gracious gift of God to you. But don't forget that when you come into this great body, you are part of one body. Christ is the head, and we are the members, and we function together as one unit to glorify God. Yes, we have different roles to play, and in this body of Christ, this body made out of all of these members, God gives gifts to his people, but not so they can be identified for special praise, not so they can feel good about themselves, not so their self-esteem can increase, but the gifts are given for the other members of the body to encourage the whole body together. We don't have a hand so we can admire and say, what a wonderful hand we have. But we have a hand because the body needs to be fed. We don't have feet so that we can show off our footwear. We have feet so that we can do the work of traveling to proclaim the gospel and so that we can work in order to provide for the body. Every gift we have is for the body. It's for others. The Ephesians were in danger of becoming self-oriented again and forgetting that we are one thing knitted together with a very significant purpose, which is to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. And so I told them, submit to one another in the same way that you submit to Christ. They didn't need me to remind them, but I reminded them that there are enemies of the cross. I mean, the persecution that was in the area should have been enough to remind them. And I reminded them that the Spirit gave them weapons in their spiritual battle. And they would have to use those weapons to protect themselves against the devices of the evil one. You know, even in prison, I found many reasons to rejoice and give praise. Even when I thought there was no opportunity to serve, God was able to use me in ways that I hadn't considered before. Even when it seemed that some doors were shut, there was plenty of operating area for fruitful service. And I'm convinced that if we look for opportunities to serve rather than looking for opportunities for others to serve us, 
if we will look for opportunities to feed rather than looking for opportunities to be fed. We will look for opportunities to give rather than focusing on opportunities to get. We will always find areas where the Holy Spirit can use us to his glory. And so I pray. I pray for them. I pray for you. That you will be strengthened in your inner being with power from the Holy Spirit. I pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith. I pray that you will become rooted and grounded in love and that you will have the power to comprehend how wide and tall and deep is the love of God for all of us. I pray that you will be filled to fullness with the Spirit of God. You will find opportunities to serve and you will glorify him all of your days. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish more than we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ forevermore. Amen. Maranatha. Would you receive the benediction from Ephesians 3? May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. And may you, being rooted and established in love, have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Go in his grace. You are dismissed.